Almost all of us have said this, we've misplaced things and have the occasional lapse of memory. These are normal parts of life. Despite what you might think, we probably don't have dementia. In fact, 80% of us worry about personally having dementia. It is true that on the current trajectory, two out of three of us won't get dementia by the age of 90. Dementia isn't a natural part of ageing. Though, ageing is an important risk factor. You're 15 times more likely to be diagnosed with dementia in your 90s than in your 60s. There are other risk factors too, resulting in a reduction in the rate of new cases of dementia across North America and Europe over the last 13 years. That's because a 65-year-old born in the 1920s compared to a 65-year-old born in the 1950s, will have very different levels of other dementia risk factors. So, in each age group, there are fewer new diagnoses of dementia every year. But the risk is still going up significantly as you age, and as we're all living longer, the overall numbers are still rising. Dementia is a complex condition, so what's happening in our brains that might explain these trends? This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. Regular listeners will know this podcast is all about conversations, not just between me, our correspondents and experts, but between them as well. This month, we're exploring the latest research to understand how dementia affects the brain and how can this impact on the risk factors for developing dementia. To help us untangle all of this, I'm joined by Dr. Kama Amin Ali. Hi, I'm Kama and I'm a lecturer in biomedical science at Teesside University. And my research centres around looking at post-mortem human brain tissue to try and understand dementia. And to help us understand what dementia is actually like, I'm joined by Paula Field. Hello, my name's Paula Field. I'm a co-carer with my sister for my mother, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's about four and a half years ago. And also joining me is podcast regular and Medical News Today's feature editor, Maria Kahoot. Hello, Hilary. Hello, everyone. I look forward to exploring more about Alzheimer's research today. Thanks, everyone, for joining me. Let's start with an overview of dementia and its causes. Cam, can I come to you? Yeah, so I I always think that it's good when we are discussing dementia to start off with a definition of what we mean by dementia. Often you might hear people use it interchangeably with things like Alzheimer's disease, but they're very distinct things. So dementia is an umbrella term. It describes a set of symptoms. It's a clinical syndrome. Those symptoms are often associated with memory impairment, but for a diagnosis of dementia, you also have to have an impairment in one or more other cognitive domains as well. So this might be personality. It might be visual spatial skills, for example. So as I mentioned, dementia is kind of that umbrella term, which has sitting under it those brain diseases that lead to dementia, 
Alzheimer's disease being one example of that. Is it hereditary or are our genes a risk factor for it? It depends on on kind of what brain disease we're talking about. So if we're going to talk about Alzheimer's disease, which I think is a good idea because it's the most common brain disease that leads to dementia, there are some types of Alzheimer's disease that are hereditary and some types that aren't. So the most common type of Alzheimer's disease is what we call sporadic Alzheimer's disease. And that counts for 97% of Alzheimer's disease cases. So 3% of cases of Alzheimer's disease will have that non-genetic origin. And this is caused by genetic mutations. This is distinct from what we call genetic risk factors. Only a small percentage of actual Alzheimer's disease cases have got that genetic non-hereditary link. So hereditary means if you get the gene from your mother or your father, you've got a one in two chance of getting the disease yourself, whereas a risk factor may be a much, much lower chance and depends on all sorts of other things. Exactly. So the risk genes that have been identified, they are genes that potentially could increase your risk of getting dementia, but it's certainly not hereditary. Whereas the 3% of cases that are familial Alzheimer's disease, those are ones that are genetic mutations that we know are hereditary. Paula, you've been looking after your mother with dementia alongside working. Let's go back to the start. Can you tell us what you first noticed? Yes. I think my sister and I had first noticed some issues with her memory after my father had died. I think probably that she had started to develop some form of dementia before that, but they sort of helped each other out and um, they lived together and they, you know, they did stuff that they'd always done. And I think he supported her through a lot of those sort of daily things. After he died, I think it became much more obvious in terms of, you know, being forgetful, sort of leaving switches on. But, you know, at that stage, we weren't sure whether, you know, her husband of almost 60 years had just died. So we weren't sure, you know, whether this was sort of a grief thing, but it it gradually progressed. And it probably took us about six months or so after he died to sort of realise that we probably did need to take it to the doctor and to find out what was happening. Maria. Paula, so how did this affect you and your sister in terms of financially and your just day-to-day life, I guess? Well, I think in the early days, it was um, because we weren't sure what was happening. You know, she was sort of okay. You could have a conversation. We were both working full-time. We'd go visit weekends like we'd always done. Well, actually more because my father had just died. But, you know, so we were there really regularly. But I think in terms of financial impact at that stage, there wasn't very much. You know, we just carried on as usual. She didn't have any carers or anybody at that stage. We used to just go in as often as we could. And then once it got to the point when we had to take her to the doctors for her first memory test, um, and once the results came back, then that's when we had to start thinking about, you know, more care. And yeah, that's resulted in my sister having to take a day off a week from her work and spend two afternoons a week with my mum. She's been doing that for nearly four years now. And we, we have other carers going in about twice a day now, one to make sure that she gets up um, and give her some lunch and the other one in the evening to give her some dinner. And they do that about four days a week and we pick up the rest. So in terms of finance, she's still at home. The cost is with the care teams. And in my sister's case, a loss of income. I've also had to go down for three days a week. But my mum does have some savings. But how long it will last or what the next step is, we don't really know. I mean, it really is quite a, you know, it just takes so much out of everyone. Um, Cam, you were interested in how diagnoses are made. 
Yeah, so Paula, I'd like to know more about what your experience of the diagnostic process was for your mother and what that experience was like for you as well. Um, well, I'd say we first took it to the doctors and they did a sort of preliminary memory test. And we were aware, I'd been to the doctors before and, you know, we had to sort of repeat all the questions and stuff to her. That memory test, obviously, they were worried. They did another memory test, which obviously showed that her memory was failing. And they then referred her to the local hospital for the CT scan. So that was probably six to eight months before the scan happened. Uh, results came back, yeah, that she had late onset Alzheimer's disease. So it was probably about six months. We weren't unduly worried, I don't think, at that stage. It was good to know what the diagnosis was. You know, once we knew that that was the situation, we then really had to sort of take stock and work out what our next steps were with her because obviously she was living alone. You know, we were working. Um, once you've got the diagnosis, you know, obviously you know what you're dealing with. And what was the hospital clinic like? Uh, I must say, and I don't know if I should say this, the medical doctors and people were not very helpful. It was a very much, here's your diagnosis, get on with it. They prescribed her a drug, which is not a very sensible option for a woman that's got Alzheimer's. You know, she's not going to remember to take a tablet every single day. After a few weeks, I mean, we were going as often as we could for her to take this tablet. You, you can't sustain that. She stopped taking it. We did speak to the doctor who actually said, to be fair, 87 years old, you know, this drug's only going to slow progression. It's not actually going to cure it. Um, she stopped taking it. And as a result, the Alzheimer's sort of referral team just dropped her. You know, and that was it. She was off the list. So we were pretty much left to our own devices. And we've just really sat back and just watched it develop. And we're doing what we can. We're there as often as we can. You know, so we've got carers going in. That sounds just such a, a difficult story. And that's quite a common story, isn't it? But just going back to this diagnosis, your mum had a CT scan. But nowadays, I understand it's a different sort of scan. Cam, can you tell us about what sort of scans and diagnostic process happens nowadays? Yes, yeah, so there are different types of scans that will be done on the brain, PET scans and MRI scans. In terms of how well they can contribute to the diagnosis of brain disease is um, questionable, I think, because if we're looking for brain changes that are associated with Alzheimer's disease, for example, the question is how well can we see that pathology in the brain in life Something like Alzheimer's disease can actually only be diagnosed post-mortem when we can confirm that those pathological changes in the brain are actually there. But something like a PET scan or an MRI scan, they can see whether there is that general atrophy in the brain. And that is something that we would expect to see in something like Alzheimer's disease, particularly atrophy around the hippocampus, which is part of the brain that is responsible for different memory processes. So to a certain degree, these brain scans can help with a diagnosis of a certain brain disease that is leading to dementia, but we have to remember that it can only ever be confirmed post-mortem. Paula, do come in. You said that Alzheimer's is not diagnosable until post-mortem. Therefore, I can't say that my mum has Alzheimer's. She has a form of dementia. Do you think that that's important in how we continue to care for our parents? Is there a difference? I mean, Alzheimer's is a word that we use all the time. And the diagnosis I've got written down is late onset 
Alzheimer's. She may not have Alzheimer's and how you sort of move forward with that and how you discuss it and how you talk about it. And, you know, I think that's really interesting and something that may need to be a little bit more clarified because I assume she had Alzheimer's. Yeah, I think you can say with a degree of confidence that with the diagnostic test and the way that she would present clinically and with the scans, that there is a degree of confidence there that it is Alzheimer's disease rather than something like vascular dementia, which can also be identified on a brain scan, although you might see a number of different vascular changes of Alzheimer's disease as well. But this is all to do with the complexity of these brain diseases. Often there's mixed dementia there as well. So if somebody has Alzheimer's disease, they might also have elements of vascular dementia or elements of dementia of Lewy bodies as well. So I would say that you can say reliably with the diagnostic process that she would have Alzheimer's disease, but it can only be confirmed post-mortem. And, and as you mentioned, it's the dementia that is being treated and not necessarily the brain disease that is, is causing the dementia. It's the clinical symptoms and how she clinically will present that, that should be treated, which is the dementia. Cam, you mentioned the atrophy. What does that mean? Yeah, so essentially it's atrophy is where the brain tissue degrades. You'd see shrinkage of certain areas of the brain. You'll see lots of gaps in the brain. You have enlarged ventricles. So the brain will just look very different to a brain that didn't have Alzheimer's disease. A general loss of tissue, basically. My understanding is the new PET scans can look at how the brain metabolizes nutrients like sugar, and that can show up whether or not there are some proteins that get misfolded, don't they, in Alzheimer's amyloid and tau. So Cam, can you just explain what those proteins are and how important they are? Yeah, so amyloid and tau are the kind of characteristic pathological features of Alzheimer's disease. And Amyloid basically is a protein that will aggregate and clump together in the brain and form plaques. And that's what we see in Alzheimer's disease. And these plaques then disrupt neuronal cell function. And then that kind of leads to a lot of those cognitive issues that we talked about earlier. There's also tau, which is a protein, again, in the brain. Again, it's another characteristic pathological feature of Alzheimer's disease. And normally it's a protein within axons of nerve cells and it helps to form what we call microtubules that are responsible for transporting nutrients within these cells. And what we see in Alzheimer's disease is that it aggregates into these tangles and it disrupts cell function in that way. And it, it affects how cells communicate with one another. I have a very simple brain. So the amyloid bits go all sticky and go all around the nerve cells in the brain. And then these tau bits of protein, like a plant that takes up water through its stem, it stops the passage of nutrients through the nerve cells. So those things together are diagnostic of Alzheimer's or are there people who have those things and don't have Alzheimer's? Yeah, so both amyloid and tau are things that we'd expect to be in the brain anyway. They kind of aggregate and clump together in ways that they shouldn't in Alzheimer's disease. So that can be quite challenging. So for example, we'd expect to see amyloid in the brain as you get older. So if you were to do a test to look for amyloid in CSF, in cerebral spinal fluid, for example, it's on its own would not be diagnostic of Alzheimer's disease. This is why I mentioned earlier that 
Alzheimer's disease and other brain diseases that lead to dementia, they can only be confirmed post-mortem because it's how the pathology is distributed in the brain that defines it being Alzheimer's disease. And also amyloid and tau as pathological hallmarks, they're also associated with other brain diseases that lead to dementia, like chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So it's just the pattern and the distribution of these pathologies that determine what the brain disease is. Paula, if I can come to you. So after that initial phase and the, the memory loss, what else did you start to notice? Well, we noticed that she became quite isolated. She didn't leave the house. She did start to leave her peas on the cooker, uh, you know, and have the fire brigade came out. And I think it was things like that, the real big sort of things that started to happen. There were only one or two, luckily, and she was fine in both cases. And I think, you know, that was the point where you started to go, eek, this is getting quite serious. Um, as I say, she was living on her own. She, over the next three or four years, I mean, she hasn't, probably washed or had a shower for all of those times. It's a habit that she has got out of and and just can't get back into it. She still has some sort of instinctual habit, so she'll still switch off the switches at the end of the day. That's something that she's done forever. Um, but pretty much everything else, she, she knows there's a fridge in her house and she knows that there should be something on the shelves and she will put stuff in the fridge. You know, it could be a packet of crisps or it could be a cup. She has this sort of visual memory of the fridge, but she doesn't quite know how to use it. She doesn't feed herself. She won't drink water. She certainly couldn't take medicines. And she still believes that she cooks her own dinner. She still believes that she can do all the things that she's always done. I don't think it's denial necessarily. I think she just forgets that it's happened. Therefore, she must have done it. So it's very interesting. I think, you know, she... She has no idea who myself or my sister are. She recognises us, but she doesn't know who we are. She has no knowledge of people going in every day to help her. It's complete blank. She pretty much sits on her chair every day with the TV on and looks into space. So from that devastating description of change in behaviour, Cam, what's actually happening in the brain? Because earlier you said it started in the hippocampus, which is the area related to managing memories. But it sounds like more things are happening. What what would actually be happening as the dementia progresses? This is one of the complexities of these types of brain diseases that lead to dementia is, first of all, how they can affect people very differently based upon the parts of the brain that are affected by the disease. But with something like Alzheimer's disease, we know that the pathology progresses into certain areas and as the disease progresses, it starts to affect more areas of the brain, which is why that you might initially see some memory problems, but a lot of people might dismiss them as just getting older until then the disease progresses and more and more cognitive domains start to be affected. So as the disease progresses to more of the cortical areas, you might see more issues around language, around personality, and then visual spatial issues that you might see later on. Maria, did you want to ask something? Yeah, I was wondering, Paula, how your mum's personality actually changed or if some parts of her previous personality became more pronounced, maybe. Uh, not really. Interestingly, I was talking to my sister about this. When they first got the diagnosis, the doctor said, do you feel that you've lost your mother? And she said no. Uh, and I think that that's... True to an extent, 
she was quite a shy person, you know, quite sociable, but quite shy, had a few hobbies, but she was very much reliant on my dad. You know, he was sort of the active one and she pretty much did sort of sit in the house and cook his dinner and wait for him to come home and they'd go to the garden centre and stuff like that. You know, you just assume that was sort of a traditional 1950s sort of relationship. Um, So once he died, she pretty much carried on doing that. She hasn't changed in the terms that she can't go out for walks or she can't do her hobbies or because she never really had those in the first place. We haven't seen this huge sort of shift in where she was before to where she is now, which may be a good thing. So can we just look back now to understand why these things are happening? There are 12 risk factors, aren't they? And Cam, can you just briefly outline the ones that are related to chronic disease and exposures. So when we're talking about risk factors, if you remember earlier on, I mentioned about sporadic Alzheimer's disease. This is the Alzheimer's disease that occurs in most cases, and it's usually over the age of 65 that we would see that. So when we're talking about risk factors, it's associated with that type of Alzheimer's disease. And we have what we call non-modifiable risk factors. So those are those risk genes that I mentioned earlier on. Age and sex are also non-modifiable risk factors. Age is actually the biggest risk factor for something like Alzheimer's disease. But we also have these 12, what we call modifiable risk factors. These are things that we do in our life that potentially we could change that can reduce our risk of dementia. And they're also generally things we can do to promote good brain health. So these modifiable risk factors, they include things like obesity, hypertension, diabetes, smoking, physical inactivity, loneliness, a brain injury is a big one as well. So there's there's 12 of them all together. And, And as I said, these are potentially things that we can modify and change to reduce our risk of dementia. So Paula, did your mum have any of those factors that might explain why she got dementia? Nope, don't think so. She didn't smoke, she didn't drink, they always had a pretty good diet. Not much activity, admittedly. They did some gardening, um, not very active, certainly not in terms of walking or that sort of stuff. So none of those. There are some other risk factors. Maria, you've been looking into this. Yeah, so some of the risk factors, but also kind of preventive interventions are around education and social activities. The longer that you stay in education, uh, the lower your risk and the more kind of socially active and involved that you are kind of lower the risk. So I was wondering, what about your mum? What was her experience, I guess, of education like and also kind of her social life? Her social life was pretty good, I think. Well, not while we were young, but they did have a group of friends sort of much later on when they were into their sort of 50s, early 60s. They'd go on holidays together. But that was quite sporadic. You know, they would do that yearly. They might see their friends every now and then. But predominantly, I would say they sort of stuck together. Uh, Education minimal, if at all. You've got to remember she was born in the early 30s. She was quite ill for the first sort of eight, ten years of her life. How old was your mum when she left school, do you think? Certainly no more than about 13, I wouldn't have thought. And probably even to that level, she wasn't there very often. Yeah, so you've got to remember the war and evacuation and all that sort of stuff. So I don't actually know, but Sue and I, my sister, discussed it would have been very limited. So I think these start to explain some of the big shifts that we've seen in incidence levels, new cases which are going down while cases overall are going up because 
we have an ageing society. So Cam, coming back to you, what is happening when we've got these elements of education, hearing impairment, social contact? How are they protecting or reducing the incidence of dementia? So these risk factors that we've talked about, we know that they're associated with an increased risk of dementia, but what we're trying to work out as scientists and as researchers is what is the mechanism that it's linking these risk factors with the disease that we see that then leads to dementia. Because we can do studies where we can find out, well, there is a significant correlation between these factors and dementia or a significant association. But what exactly is causing something like brain injury to increase somebody's risk significantly to then develop dementia. And the way that I like to imagine it is that our research into trying to understand these mechanisms is like the black box, that we're trying to work out what's happening inside that black box. So we've got these risk factors on one side, which is the input, and then the disease and the pathology, which is the output. But what is happening on the inside that is kind of linking those two things together? Yeah. And if you've got these potential to think differently and use a different pathway, which you might get from education or learning another language or having lots of social contact, you're kind of stimulating your brain to use, because we've got a lot of redundancy in our brains. And if you can use that and tap into it, that's another potential area for prevention, isn't it? To ensure that we reduce loneliness and social isolation. Yes, it's almost like you, you've got risk factors and protective factors. And, you know, it's all about that balance between uh, minimising your risk factors and maximising the protective factors, which would be kind of the opposite of, of those risk factors. So good education, good physical activity, minimising or not smoking and minimising alcohol consumption, things like that, reducing your risk of head injury. It's, it's a game of probability, really, because there's no guarantee that if you don't do any of these things that you'll be protected from it, but it's all about managing risk, essentially. Do you know what? I read that all of those 12 only account for 40% of the dementia. So you've got the other 60%, which is in your black box. Can I come back to your black box now? Because so we've got amyloid and tau, and we've got these risk factors, but what else is going on? Because we know that amyloid and tau don't tell us the whole story, because if we try and target drugs against them, they don't necessarily work. So what other theories are there about what's going on in the black box to explain why somebody might get dementia and someone else might not? So neuroinflammation is quite a significant area of research in terms of looking at a potential mechanism that would be driving brain diseases that lead to dementia. Can I just stop you there? Sorry, Cam. You said neuroinflammation. What do you mean by that? Neuroinflammation is something that I'm interested in. And there is a type of immune cell in the brain called microglia. And they're involved in, in an inflammatory response in the brain. A lot of the research that I've done is around brain injury. So I've looked at these microglial cells and both the acute inflammatory response and also a chronic inflammatory response as a result of brain injury and how that might be the mechanism that is increasing the risk of dementia after brain injury. So it's all about how these cells respond as part of a neuroinflammatory response in the brain and how over time, if there is a chronic response, because we know that a, a neuroinflammatory response is originally designed to be protective, 
But if these cells are activated long term, as in chronic activation, could they actually be causing damage? And could that be what is then leading to the development of the pathology that we see in something like Alzheimer's? Maria? I was also thinking about some recent research that's been looking at the gut-brain axis, the link between the bacteria in our gut and what goes on in our brain. And there's been some talk about the influence, I guess, of gut bacteria on the brain in in the context of dementia as well. Um, So I'm wondering if that might have anything to do with neuroinflammation at any level. Yeah, it's possible because when we're talking about neuroinflammation, this could be, you know, systemic inflammation. It could be inflammation that's happened at some point in a person's life. It could be inflammation that has happened and then affected the brain. So there is possibility of inflammation that's happened somewhere else in the body that has then led to an inflammatory response in the brain. It doesn't necessarily have to be from an injury that I look at in the brain. It can be systemic inflammation as well. When I was looking into this and I came across the fact that inflammation may be one of the things that's happening in the black box to make the amyloid and tau be a real problem, I thought, oh, I wonder whether or not gum disease is a problem because gum disease is something extraordinary. I mean, it increases your risk of poor diabetic control, increases risk of miscarriage and because it's a low-grade inflammation. Do you know anything about that? That there are a number of things that are identified as potential risks for dementia, such as gum disease. Lack of sleep is another one that comes up quite a lot. But there isn't enough evidence there yet to say that there is a strong enough association that they can be included in the model that we have about risk factors. But certainly there is research that is looking at gum disease and also things like lack of sleep and other potential risk factors as well. So it's it's interesting that you brought that up. Paula, is it? Any of this ringing true for your mother? Uh, no. <laughs> no. I mean, interestingly, I don't know about my mom's teeth. I've never known to go to the dentist. At some point, she has some amazing sort of dentures or something put in. I've never seen her ever clean her teeth. And she certainly didn't take them out and put them in a, in a, in a jam jar. Sleeping, no. As a family, we've always been really good sleepers. I can't make any links with either of those to her. And I I think this is really important. You know, I'm so glad you're with us here because actually risk factors are risk factors. They don't explain for a particular individual exactly why one person did get dementia and why someone else didn't. I just want to ask all of you now how you're feeling about the future for dementia and Alzheimer's. Paula, can I start with you? It's a tricky one. I think... In our situation, we're probably, to be brutally honest, too late for any sort of treatment for my mum. For us, it's just sort of sitting back and keeping her comfortable, keeping her safe, making sure she's fed, making sure she drinks, and probably sadly just watching. I don't don't know what's going to happen or, or, you know, what the result from her will be. You know, my question is sort of at what point do you think that people should approach their doctor for a diagnosis or for a brain scan? Because, you know, in her case... We didn't notice it. It was too late. I'm not saying they could have stopped it. At what point do you think that we need to get on top of this and actually not wait until the diagnosis? Because once you've got a diagnosis, you know, there's pretty little that you can do, to be fair. And it's sad. It's a waiting game and we don't know what to expect or where we're going to go with this. But we had no warning. There was nothing that we could do about it in advance. Um, 
Cam, do you want to pick up that question about when should we be thinking about it? Because people have memory lapses all the time. What's the threshold that people should be looking out for? So I would say that diagnosis as early as possible is the best thing to do, really. And that can be really challenging because often those early signs can be just dismissed as getting older or not really significant enough. And even if you were to suggest, oh, maybe we should go to the doctor, you can't make a family member do that if they don't want to or if they themselves don't think that there's anything wrong. So there can be a lot of challenges around that and a lot of difficult discussions. But certainly for any treatment to do with dementia, to do with Alzheimer's, the earlier the diagnosis, the better, because treatments will be most effective. Any treatments that we currently have, they can't stop the disease, they can't halt it, but they can have a much more significant impact on symptoms the earlier that they're delivered. But I do think that going forward, we need to be able to diagnose much earlier if we want to have effective treatments. And just very quickly, in terms of developing treatments, it's unlikely that we're going to have one single drug that is going to have a significant impact. Because there's lots of these different potential disease mechanisms, it's likely that we're going to need different drugs that are administered together in parallel that will have any significant effect on disease progression. Uh, Paula, do you want to come back on that? Yeah. Do you think potentially we could get to a place where testing or diagnosing for dementia is something like you'd have for a mammogram, breast cancer screening, that it becomes routine part of your everyday medical sort of self-care? I think so. This is something that in my research I've been looking at a little bit. If we have better cognitive tests that are more sensitive to certain types of memory that decline, because different types of memory decline at different rates, if we have sensitive tests, then we can certainly administer them at a certain age when your risk increases. And then hopefully that'll start picking people up at an earlier rate when the disease is in its earlier stages. And that's what I think will have a significant effect on dementia in the future. Dr. Kama Amin Ali, Paula Field, Maria Kahoot, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And of course, thank you for listening. You can read more about dementia on our website in Maria's complimentary article. Find that at medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be in conversation again at the end of July, where we'll be talking about hepatitis. See you then. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a high-vis radio production for Medical News Today.